This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Coffeehouse Shots, a Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth. And once again, there's lots of talk today about uh, imminent incursion to Ukraine from Russia. But James, Wednesday was always the day before we thought this could happen if you're looking at US intelligence reports. Um, we are now on Tuesday. But there does seem to be at least a, r- a ray of hope being found in some of the phrasing um, coming from Russia. Yes, the Russians this morning are emphasising that uh, some of the units that have been on the Ukrainian border are returning to barracks. Now, that is a kind of classic trust but verify situation. And, you know, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden are talking about a kind of diplomatic window. Set against that is that the Duma has just passed a motion asking Putin to recognise the two breakaway pro-Russian, essentially, republics in Ukraine. Now, the significance of that is twofold. One, obviously, recognising them would be something that Putin could do. And then do Russian forces go in to protect those places? And secondly, remember, these breakaway republics claim far more territory than they actually control. And that leads you to another possible scenario where the Russians not only go in to protect the areas that that are currently under the control of these breakaway republics, but they also move to claim the other territory that these two breakaway republics claim. Now, that would obviously lead to a major war between Russian and Ukrainian forces. So I, I, I think it is still, we're still in a stage where we do not yet know what Vladimir Putin is planning. I think for the reasons that we've discussed in this podcast before, Vladimir Putin is unlikely to opt for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine because he knows that that would draw the most unified Western response. I think he's more likely to go for something which is more of a kind of salami-slicing tactic in an attempt to try and exploit Western divisions. And James, do you think this is a point where if there is no invasion on Wednesday, are we going to start to see a situation where there is a perhaps a light sense of relief forming? Or actually, is it going to be more in a few weeks' time, given that we don't believe Putin can actually keep that level of troops at the border for that period? Yeah, I don't I don't think if Wednesday comes and goes, there will be a kind of massive sigh of relief because, you know, the, the, Russia has put in place equipment and forces sufficiently close to the border that it can escalate now far more quickly than it could have done before. And so I don't think it will be until the ground conditions become less hospitable to an invasion in terms of, you know, whether the ground is frozen or not, that you see uh, people begin to be relieved. I think what we are seeing is that Putin has given himself a whole series of options in Ukraine. And we do not yet know which one he will choose to take. I also think I have a lot of sympathy for those people who say that Putin himself doesn't know yet which of these options he intends to take. I think there is also something else going on, which is if Wednesday comes and goes without Russian forces entering further entering Ukraine, then I think we will see a battle of narratives. The Russians will attempt to say this was all Western hysteria. It was all ridiculous. They didn't know what they were talking about. 
And the West will try and say, especially Washington and London, that, you know, that this decision to kind of actively brief on intelligence, try and use intelligence preemptively, has changed Russia's plans by, for example, flagging up the danger of a false flag attack that would be used as a pretext for Russian forces going into Ukraine. Now, James, back in the UK, one of the issues that we know has been dogging the government for some time and will cast a shadow through most of this year is cost of living. There are new figures out today, ultimately, on wage growth, and it doesn't make particularly pleasant reading because ultimately inflation seems to be outpacing. Yeah, look, it, one of the things that always makes politics scratchy and re-election very hard for any government is when people's real wages are going down. And at the moment, it looks like inflation is outpacing wage growth. And I think the second problem for the government is, you know, in April, people's taxes are going up. And so people's taxes are going up at a time when their pay packets are being squeezed by inflation. I mean, you can see how that is politically very difficult for the government. You've already seen the government spending £9 billion to try, or slightly over £9 billion, to try and limit the impact of energy price rises, both on people's pockets and on inflation. But I think the other, I think the question now is, you know, how does the government respond to this? What does it do about, for example, public sector pay and the like? And do you get into a kind of wage price spiral with people demanding on wage increases because inflation is going up and that creates further inflationary pressures? And then also just to, to, to return to two things that we've been discussing here. Obviously, these Russian-Ukraine tensions, if they were to continue or to escalate further, those would push up global gas prices again. And so you can see how the cost of living is going to be a very difficult backdrop for the next year or two for this government. I mean, you know, the government obviously has its own self-inflicted political problems over party gate and the like. But even if it didn't have those issues, you know, this, this would still be a difficult time for the government politically because of this broader economic context. And James, you mentioned this loop that we could find where if everyone goes to pay rises, it becomes uh, much harder to get out of the inflation trap. But it's also quite a difficult political argument to land, isn't it? Because we saw Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, make that point. People are very quick to point out that Andrew Bailey's salary is way above the average salary in the UK. And I think when Simon Clark, who's Chief Secretary of the Treasury, made a similar point, it also landed very badly. So do you think we're going to see more ministers in a way coming out and saying, you know, don't ask for a pay rise, don't push for a pay rise, just just get through this, even though you probably earn less than me? Uh, I think they would be foolish to get involved in that conversation. But there is one area where the government can't duck it, which is public sector pay. What pay rises will people in the public sector be offered? That is obviously going to be controversial if those pay rises are below inflation. But equally, if those pay rises are above inflation increases, you know, that will create wage pressures across the economy. James, one of the things that's interesting is Rishi Sunak's response to cost of living has obviously, for many MPs, underwhelmed. You've seen criticism that he should do more. How do you think Labour's solutions, how, how are they landing? Because obviously the most unpopular thing is the national insurance hike. We know that is the government is sticking with that. It's quite interesting in some of the um, approved ratings of various elite politicians that are coming out. So, for example, Redfield and Wilton do one of Rishi Sunak and they 
point where you know national insurance comes in and then also where the, the confirmation that they'll be sticking with it comes in and each time his personal rankings appear to drop a bit we know that Labour said they won't do that they're talking about a windfall tax and then also I think even on energy bills you can imagine that VAT would be in something that you cutting VAT would be something that could have played to the base given it's something you do from leaving the EU do you think Labour is finding some ground here? Look this is obviously the most fertile territory for Labour I think the VAT cut is good politics, bad policy. It's obviously good politics in that you can portray it as a kind of Brexit dividend that reduces bills. It's bad policy because the biggest cash beneficiary of this would be the people with the biggest heating bills, which tend to be the people who live in the largest, grandest houses. I also think the windfall tax is one of those ideas that sounds superficially appealing. But, you know, one of the reasons why energy prices are so high is that there just hasn't been sufficient investment in energy development and exploration in in recent years. A windfall tax is one of the things that would deter that still further. So it's classic good opposition politics, bad policy. But I think that Labour will try and make hay with this cost of living argument. And you can definitely see that it has the potential to give them some traction. And I mean, they will hope actually that, you know, by the time in the next election, some of the worst pain will have passed, but they will be able to argue that, you know, the Tories didn't do enough to help you. I, I think the challenge for the Tories is, can they explain to people that, you know, first of all, these are global phenomena that the inflation rate in other advanced economies is, is is rising faster, that on energy prices are rising again across the developed world. You know, yes, France has limited the rise in people's energy bills by a larger amount, but it has done that by taking a huge amount of the value of EDF, by essentially forcing EDF, which is semi-publicly owned, to provide energy at an artificially low price. So there, there are all of these challenges. And then the other challenge for the government is whether it can explain how much of this is the need to get the kind of public finances back on track after the massive expenditure in the pandemic and the waiting list that builds up during the pandemic. I think one of the challenges for the government, though, is that we know that their justification for raising national insurance is to reduce the NHS waiting list. But as Kate Andrews wrote in uh, the most recent issue of The Spectator, these waiting lists might still be very, very high at the most likely moment of the next election, which is probably something like May or September 2024. And... If that is the case, the danger for the Tories is they fall between two stools. They've raised people's taxes, so they've lost some of their reputation for being a low-tax party. And at the same time, they haven't managed to reduce the NHS waiting list by a sufficient amount to avoid the attack, you know, the inevitable Labour attack, but you can't trust the Tories with the NHS. I think it's interesting if you think about the NHS waiting list, because if you think about the two most recent elections, the NHS has not been the issue it has been previously for the Tories in elections. And that's partly because Boris Johnson tried a different approach. If you remember under Cameron, there was almost an approach of don't go too near issues that are tricky for you. Whereas I think particularly partly down to Dominic Cummings' involvement, it was almost as though, and the vote leave agenda, the Tories tried to own the NHS. And it definitely discombobulated Labour to a degree. Those attack lines about, you know, Tories wanting to privatise the NHS, linking that to Brexit, were harder to land. And I think that Boris Johnson going for this higher spend programme, and yes, Labour will likely say it's it's still not enough, has neutralised the issue to a degree. Are we now going to head towards an election, probably 2024 at this rate, where you have a situation where the NHS is going to be back on the table? And you speak to, you know, figures involved closely with these waiting lists, they do think 
that the earliest this will go down is 2024. So if you're in a situation where potentially waiting lists could still actually be going up, given the best case seems to be 2024, that is going to start, I think, to make the NHS very potent and lots of questions. And given, I think, the argument lots of Tory MPs want to make and also members of the Cabinet, is that you, you know, it's not enough to just put money into the NHS, you have to change how it's run. I think that's harder to land in an election the promises from Labour they're going to invest properly and this argument that the Tories haven't been enough so I think you can start to see how it could be a real weakness for the Tories at the next election even if you are starting to you know see the glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you Katie and thank you for listening. That was Coffee House Shots on Tuesday the 15th of February.